Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Mary Harris. I'm the host of Slate's new daily news podcast, What Next? And I have a question for you. Do you ever get a push notification or a news alert on Twitter and think, no, stop the news. I want to get off. Then What Next is the podcast for you. Each afternoon, we're going to break down that headline you've seen your friends retweeting all day and tell you what matters, what doesn't, and what next. Just look for What Next on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. See you there. Welcome back to Women Belong in the House, and happy Election Day. And there are tight races all over this country that depend on all of us giving honor to our greatest democratic right and privilege. So let your vote make a difference. Let your vote count. Let your vote speak for you. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. A record number of women are on ballots all over the country today. Over the past two months, we've brought you their stories. We've talked about why women tend to run less and how their motivation for stepping up generally contrasts with their male counterparts. They also have the motivation to run. Why run? So men are more likely to tell us, the men who are in office, that when they first ran for office, what motivated them to do it was an interest in politics, an interest in a career in politics. They want to be in it. Women tell us that it's because of a public policy issue. So there's some problem they want to solve. We dove into money, race, and religion in politics. When we talk about democracy, we always say we want a reflective democracy. But that doesn't just mean men and women. That means women of color, women from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different religious backgrounds. That's how you create a reflective democracy. When your elected officials actually look like the country, and that's what's happening. We talked about the differences between the two biggest political parties. In order for women to be effective, you can't just have women on one side, Democratic women. It is a huge challenge to get Republicans to elect women to the House, and it's something with which they have really struggled. And we examined how incredible women are offending historical stereotypes. So we can have combat pilots now run for office, and those are women, because we now have female combat pilots. So, you know, the world of occupation and experience has opened to women even in the last 10 or 15 years in the ways that it wasn't open when I was young. No matter what the results are today, It isn't the end of the so-called wave. It's the beginning of the next chapter of the movement. Today, we're doing things a little bit differently. We're bringing you two candidates to help us look back and synthesize everything we've learned. As always, these interviews are with women on the campaign trail. So apologies for some of the sound quality. We really think the content makes up for it. Our first candidate is someone who turned tragedy into a call to action. Her story epitomizes the fact that women tend to run for office to address a policy issue or problem that's affected her family or community. 
Lucy McBath is the Democratic candidate running in Georgia's 6th District. Her story is brought to you in conjunction with Elle Magazine's Madison Feller, who did this interview. Special thanks to Elle for letting us use the audio. Here's Lucy. I grew up in Illinois, and I grew up in an environment where, you know, my parents were very politically active in the civil rights movement. My father acted as the Illinois branch president of the NAACP, and so we spent a lot of time in the marches, the rallies, all the events that the NAACP had, you know, working on behalf of people of color. So those were my earliest experiences. I remember being put in the stroller. <laughs> my mom and my dad were pushing us around and hearing We Shall Overcome be sung. That was a song I probably knew from an infant. <laughs> Just, you know, looking at the pictures of my father and the work that he did around the nation, in particular in Illinois, the NAACP, I've got pictures of my father at the side of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 on my phone. I have pictures with my dad with Eleanor Roosevelt. Roy Wilkins and other notable people that now that I'm older and really understand what kind of work my parents did, I guess that's the reason why I'm so entrenched and engaged in civil and human rights work now and advocacy as well as politics because it's what I have lived fighting for with my family, even though I didn't know I was fighting for it as well. Lucy graduated from Virginia State University with a degree in political science, and she worked at Delta Airlines in flight service for 30 years. Despite her interest in politics, she didn't always think she'd get involved at this level. I thought as a young woman, I was always kind of interested in, in lobbying. I thought, wow, find a cause that you're passionate about and to really work on behalf of that cause, work on lobbying your state legislators or your federal legislators. That was of interest to me. But I never really imagined that I would be doing it. I never imagined the roles that I've taken on, the work that I do now, not in a million years would I ever have expected that I would be doing this. Then tragedy befell her family. November 2012. Authorities say it began with a fight over loud music at a Jacksonville, Florida gas station and ended with 17-year-old Jordan Davis shot and killed. In 2012, Lucy's son, Jordan Davis, was shot and killed at a gas station in Jacksonville, Florida, by a man who objected to the volume of the music Jordan and some friends were playing in their car. The man who shot him was eventually convicted of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. Lucy's son was taken from her, and that called her to action. Her faith helped to push her forward. I have deep abiding faith in God. And what I began to recognize early on is when Jordan died was the only time I ever really questioned God. Why did this happen? How did this happen? You know, you promised me that Jordan would have a long, healthy life, and I was expecting grandchildren. But there again, I used to always ask that God would use me and Jordan. That was one of my biggest prayers. And loving God the way that I do, in the depth that I do, I, I really began to understand very early on that if I'm asking God to use me, I won't always get to choose what that looks like. You know, I don't get to choose that. All I'm asking is to be obedient. So I stopped questioning why, and then my next question was, okay, Lord, so now what? What do you want me to do? How do I take this tragedy, the loss of my child, and what do I do with this? Because what I did recognize is that it would do no justice to me or my family or my loved ones or anyone that knows me if I were to lay down and die as well. It would not do any good for me to tuck my tail 
and to hide for the rest of my life in the tragedy. That would be a tragedy in itself. That's a second death. And that I wanted to spend the rest of my life making an impact and making a difference. Even if I never lived to see the difference, that at the end of my days, I would know that I did my best. Lucy became a gun safety activist. She was the spokeswoman for Every Town for Gun Safety and Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. And she served as the faith and outreach leader for both organizations. In 2016, Lucy served as a surrogate for the Hillary Clinton campaign as one of the mothers of the movement. Hillary Clinton isn't afraid to say that black lives matter. She isn't afraid to sit at a table with grieving mothers and bear the full force of our anguish. She doesn't build walls around her heart. Not only did she listen to our problems, she invited us to become a part of the solution. It was one of the most empowering, enlightening, and important times of my life. It was just a time when I felt like I really was given the blessing and the ability to make history and to be a part of history for Secretary Clinton and for mothers and families like myself all over the nation that didn't have a voice and have lost their loved ones to unnecessary gun violence. And that it was probably the most important time that I would ever be given to really raise the platform for this issue and to be a credible voice and face of the gun violence that is happening in this country. I was very grateful that Jordan's life and death would be a catalyst to save so many people's lives. When Secretary Clinton ran for office, it was the first time in the history of this nation that gun violence prevention was a true platform issue. But as we know, Secretary Clinton lost. We were with Hillary in New York. We were expecting to win. And at about 9.30, when tides start to turn, I mean, we were heartbroken. Absolutely just shattered. And I have to be honest with you, I came home from New York, and I stayed in the house for two days, literally, in my pajamas. I take them off and take a shower and put them right back on. And I was devastated because I kept thinking, now what? What do we do with this? But I thought that it was the biggest awakening that this nation has ever seen. For me, me personally, it was a spiritual awakening. It was just an overall awakening that, oh my goodness, we've got so much work to be done. And that our whole sense of democracy as we have known it is threatened. And then I had to think, so what am I going to do about it? It wasn't just that the candidate Lucy was rooting for lost. The push to do something came from the fact that the new administration wasn't dealing with the issues that Lucy cares about. For one, the momentum behind gun control measures came to a halt. After we lost the race with Hillary Clinton, I spent about three months of my time doing self-care, you know, from November after we lost, from November to February. That at home had a hip replacement, was healing, resting, and just really trying to figure out, okay, so we lost our ability to be able to really make any strides in Washington, in the White House, with the election of Donald Trump. So we don't have a gun sense champion that will help build upon the platform of gun violence prevention. What do I do? You know, where do I go? And I actually spend a lot of time praying. You know, Lord, 
what am I to do now? How do I expand the work? And how do I help Georgia? And I just kept saying, you know, I need confirmation. Slowly but surely, you know, Emily List gave me their award for my activism. And then the Democratic Party of Georgia came and said, we want to give you our chairman's award for the work that you've been doing on behalf of the Democratic Party for Clinton. And then Representative Renita Shannon here in Georgia came to me out to breakfast and basically said, we need you. We need your voice. You know, you're the only one who can really help work with Democrats and Republicans to bring some common sense to the gun culture and we need you to stand up. And I said, okay, I guess this is the confirmation I was looking for. The majority of women have to be recruited before deciding to run for office. That was the case for Lucy. The final catalyst was the devastating shooting that happened in Parkland, Florida. Good evening. It began as an ordinary school day, and it was almost over when gunfire erupted this afternoon. This deadly mass shooting happened in Parkland, Florida, about 20 miles northwest of Fort Lauderdale at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, attended by about 3,000 students. So i just gotten off the plane in Atlanta. I'd been in Colorado for three days when I got the news about Parkland. And I was devastated. And I was angry because I felt like, here we go again. This is not going to stop. And that now we have our children that are standing up for themselves because our legislators and adults refuse to do the right thing. And I felt that this is a time when our children need our help. We need to really be about the business of preserving their futures, our own futures. And that I would do everything in my power to help push the needle on this issue in Washington. As a woman, as a woman of color, and as the mother of a child who was killed by gun violence, Lucy decided to run in order to focus on the issues she herself has faced. Also other things too, like, you know, healthcare. I'm a two-time breast cancer survivor, so healthcare is really important to me. Education is really important to me. I homeschooled Jordan because our own neighborhood school was a Title I family school, and I didn't want him to go there. And I know that not everyone has the ability to be able to homeschool their children. So these are all the kinds of things I was very concerned about. I was very concerned about the demographics of people that are being discriminated against because of their religious upbringing or because of their racial identity. Just very concerned about what's happening with multinational corporations and the rich are getting all the tax breaks and Middle-income families are bearing a lot of the tax burden. These are all the kinds of things that I felt like I, too, have been through these experiences. Gun violence prevention, health care, educating my child. I'm a minority, so I know what it's like to be discriminated against, and that's the reason why I stood up. We've spoken about the fact that women tend to run for office less than men. In Episode 5, we talked about how that has to do with the confidence gap. For Lucy... Her experiences have made her unafraid. I'm not afraid. In my mind, the worst thing that ever could happen to a mother, to a woman, has happened to me. And so there's not much more I'm afraid of now. There really isn't. I think the only thing I would be afraid of is to fear itself. Not doing something because of fear. That's what I fear. Not doing it because I'm afraid. On the campaign trail, Lucy has seen that her activism, her decision to step up, really does have an effect on others. I went to a symposium where individuals in the community, students included, teachers and law enforcement, were speaking to our state senators about public safety in our schools. At the end of the symposium, you know, I go down and 
there were some people that I knew and I wanted to say hello to. There's a young man though who spoke at the podium, young black male. And I was just so amazed by the research that he had done and the amount of information that he had to speak so credibly about the need for gun safety and protecting them, the students, in their schools. And he was just so eloquent and so passionate. And as I was looking at him, I kept thinking of Jordan. You know, I, I see Jordan when I see him. So afterwards, I went down to the front to talk to people that I knew. And as we're coming to him, and I wanted to shake his hand and say, thank you for what you said today, he screamed out, he's like, Lucy. And I was so amazed because I thought, wow, do you know me? You know, this young man. And that was such an amazing moment for me because I felt like, okay, maybe I am making a difference. Maybe I am having some impact on people. And as I said, I may not know it. I may not ever see it. But as long as I'm making an impact in people's lives, I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to do. And I'm not ever going to stop doing that. A quick aside. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Lucy McBath took her frustration and anger after her son was shot and fueled it into action. Women's anger is a powerful tool. Learn more about it in Rebecca Tracer's incredible book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. I highly recommend it. I finished it in a day. You can get Good and Mad or any audiobook you want for free with a 30-day trial membership if you go to audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. Check it out. It's audibletrial.com slash womenbelonginthehouse. Each woman who's running this year has her own story of why she decided to step up. For Lucy, her personal experiences as a mother, as a person of color, and as a person of faith fueled her. The common threads that I've heard from candidates across the country are that these women want to create change to make things better for their children, their parents, and their peers. That means they're focusing on healthcare, education, good-paying jobs, infrastructure, and safety. They're also stepping up because they're worried about the path our country is traveling. Our second candidate today speaks to that point. I am Leslie Coburn. I am the Democratic nominee for Congress for the 5th District of Virginia, and I'm 66. I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area. My family had been in California for many, many generations, some of whom had come from Virginia before that. So it was logical to end up in Virginia for me. I went away to college. I went to Yale. And then I went to graduate school in London, and I became a journalist covering the world. I covered U.S. foreign policy for 35 years. I worked at all of the networks. I was a producer at 60 Minutes for many years, a correspondent at Frontline, wrote for many magazines, wrote books, and then thought that my career, which had been, you know, very distinguished, won all the awards you can win in broadcast journalism, taught at Princeton, thought that was done. I thought I was going to spend a very nice, happy time on my farm in Rappahannock where we have cattle and I'm very interested in all sorts of organic things that you do on farms. But then Mr. Trump came along and really changed my trajectory dramatically. Throughout Leslie's prestigious career in journalism, her stories held politicians accountable. I was never interested in being a politician, ever. But as a journalist, you're 
very involved in politics at all times, certainly my sort of journalism. I mean, I covered the world and I covered Wall Street. I covered many of the most important issues of our time. So that is most definitely political. Every story I've ever done had a piece of it that was tied to Washington. In the war on drugs, which side is the CIA on? Our program was produced by Leslie and Andrew Coburn. It is called Guns, Drugs, and the CIA, and is reported by Leslie Coburn. I was always holding somebody's feet to the fire over U.S. foreign policy or expanding what was said in the story about that. I'll give you an example. Like One story that I talk about on the campaign trail is during the war in Iraq, National Guard were being forced to go on patrol in Humvees with no armor on the bottom. They called them cardboard coffins. They used to go out to the dump yard outside Baghdad to find scrap metal to tack onto these things and put sandbags on the bottom, none of which worked. So we worked together. I worked with the guard. We did a big expose, which was very political in the sense that we all got in trouble with the Pentagon. But we did manage to successfully really contribute to the effort to uparmor these vehicles and saved a lot of lives. So that kind of story, which is an example of dozens and dozens of the kinds of things that I was interested in changing that kind of skill translates really beautifully into representing the 5th District. Her experience made her keenly aware of the importance of the press. Attacks on the 4th Estate were the final straw that made her step up and run. The press has become so dishonest that if we don't talk about it, we are doing a tremendous disservice to the American people. Still, the decision was a process. Well, it was over time. It was a sort of cascade of events. I mean, I remember the first thing that comes to mind is Trump's audio tape where he's talking about women in the most sort of graphic and horrifying ways. And really thinking that this person is going to be president of the United States. And then it was very important to me that he started attacking journalists, having been one myself. Really, I believe in the profession, no matter who they are, you have to have journalists in democracy. I've been to so many countries where journalism has been completely neutered and where parliaments are just rubber stamp parliaments. So I understand the importance of it. And when he started calling journalists the enemy of the people, I really felt he'd crossed a line and that it was important to stand up. If you cross that line, you're going to cross other lines, which he certainly has done since. But then the Women's March was very important to me. And locally, we had a lot of conversation in my county about the whole issue of fake news, what it meant, having an alternate reality, how serious it was, what a problem it is, having people with two entirely sets of one facts and other fantasies, but they think it's fact. Like Lucy and like many other women, Leslie was recruited to run. She didn't immediately say yes. I was asked by two local chairs if I would consider running, and I didn't immediately say yes. I got in the car and spent three months traveling around my district with my notebooks to see whether it would be possible to do it for me. And I decided it definitely was and then uh, and then declared in July of 2017. Driving around her district is no small endeavor. Our district is 10,000 square miles. It's bigger than New Jersey, and it goes almost all the way up to the top of Virginia, and it goes all the way down to the border with North Carolina. It is a very gerrymandered 
district. But having said that, it's 21 rural counties surrounding Charlottesville and Albemarle. Charlottesville and Albemarle are blue islands in the middle of red counties. However, in the red counties, we have discovered now many, many Democrats who felt that they were not, had not been heard, had not been listened to. Another topic we've covered this season is the abundant structural barriers for U.S. voters to make their voices heard. Gerrymandering is one of those tactics, as well as policies that lead to voter suppression. Leslie says part of her challenge is to inspire people to vote who may not have done so before, people who may not have been considered when the district was drawn. Interestingly enough, even though they gerrymandered it to make it more difficult for a Democrat to run, we actually have more Democrats in this district than Republicans. So for us, from the very beginning, it has been a matter of get out the vote. Give people something to vote for. That's why it was so important to go around and see what was really on people's minds, what they really cared about, in order to give people something to vote for. And our priorities came out of that. When I started this show, I thought that we'd find that the issues that people care about differ in different parts of the country. Leslie was told that about her district, too. But that hasn't been the case. Many people had said to me, oh, this district is so huge. People in the north have different interests from people in the south. And the fact is, that's not true. On the big issues, they have very similar interests. The most important one is health care. And our representative, Tom Garrett, he immediately, when he was able to vote on the Affordable Care Act, he voted to repeal it. That would have taken health care away from 23 million people. I immediately went down to one clinic, for example, the Blue Ridge Clinic, to see how it would affect one small clinic. And even there, it would have taken health care away from 1,600 children. So it was dire for the district health care. People became very, very aware of it. Most people in our district have pre-existing conditions. So getting rid of the Affordable Care Act means that you get rid of that protection that says legally insurance companies have to offer you insurance, which of course before they didn't. You could be denied for anything from diabetes. We have a lot of diabetes here to if you'd had cancer. So healthcare is number one. Plus we have like many parts of the country, we have an opioids plague here and we have serious problems with once Trump took away the subsidies from insurance companies in Charlottesville and surrounding counties, suddenly you had only one insurance company. It was a monopoly. The others fled. And if you were on the individual market, a family of four was paying $36,000 a year with a $12,000 deductible. So incredible gouging going on because there was no competition. So there's an insurance issue as well. Plus, if you go to a county like Bedford, you're going to find a lot of people who are literally cutting their pills in half because they cannot afford medication. So the idea of representing them to finally get the U.S. government to negotiate drug prices would be very exciting. I can't say enough that today we are witnessing something historic. More women than ever before are on ballots across the country. It feels absolutely fantastic. When in Virginia, we have six Democratic nominees who are women. And these women, I got to know them over time because some of us went through Emerge together. Others of us went to Candidate Week in Washington. So to see all these women who, as soon as I got to know them, I admire them so much. We have women who are really incredibly capable, who've had other lives. 
besides politics, and they've really done amazing stuff. So the thought of us all going together to Capitol Hill, it's very, very exciting. And I know that there are amazing women all over the country. I love the fact that we all just quietly stood up. It's not just that more women are running. It's also that more diverse people in all kinds of ways, race, religion, socioeconomic background, career history, are stepping up too. As more people from different backgrounds come to decision-making tables, we have an opportunity to make government better. Those newcomers bring perspectives that have otherwise been silenced in the halls of government. For example, studies show that women in office more often amplify the voices and issues of other underrepresented groups. And women introduce more legislation about the issues that affect women, children, and families than their male counterparts. It inevitably changes. We have a different perspective. There are, for example, issues of equal pay. It is obvious that all of us would want equal pay. So how do you enforce that? The bills that are on the table that don't have enough votes, we would vote for them. One thing I have been concerned about for a very long time because I think it's really wrong, is a lot of sexual assault goes on in the military. And I know that there are people who have really stepped up on that issue, like Senator Gillibrand and quite a number of people in the House. So to join that group and really make changes to make sure that when women are judged, it's outside of their chain of command, not in their chain of command. And that kind of thing, it's an obvious thing to pay attention to and regard as a top priority. My opponent, one of the first things he has pledged that he would like to do besides repealing the Affordable Care Act is he would like to defund Planned Parenthood. So in debate, I said to him, you know, of course, it probably has never occurred to him what this means. I said, look, this is health care for 2.4 million women, rural women. And certainly we have a lot of rural women. And this is women of color. This is women who desperately need the cancer screening. And you're going to take that away from them? To me, the idea of defunding that, I just couldn't imagine it. But for him, it's an easy political slogan. Running for office is hard. It takes a toll physically, emotionally, and financially. The hurdles make clear why so few people decide to run. Why subject yourself to that? Being in a campaign, it's like being in a triathlon. And I really mean that. If you're doing it the way we're doing it, which is a campaign where you're not just relying on negative ads and this sort of thing, where you're really doing the work, it's very arduous. So you have to have a lot of people willing to put in that time, willing to put in the miles. I've put over 80,000 miles on my car doing this. It is nonstop. Your whole rest of your life completely recedes. But you can't really do it unless you believe in the importance of doing it. And in 2018, This is the most important election of my lifetime. So really, the arduous part of it, it doesn't really matter because of the importance of sticking to it and getting through to the end and getting things done on Capitol Hill and flipping the House of Representatives. We desperately need it. Today is Election Day. It's your last chance to impact who will make up our next Congress. These people will have the power to affect each one of our lives. I hope that you're listening to the show while driving to the polls or maybe even driving others. Regardless, please get out there and do it. I got to meet Representative John Lewis a few weeks ago here in Greensboro, and he said that voting is the most powerful, nonviolent tool we have. Let's use it. We'll be back next week to discuss the results of today's election and how we move forward. 
This isn't the end. It's the beginning of the next chapter of this movement. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends. If you didn't, let me know. Let's start a conversation. Here at Wonder Media Network, we're all about learning from people with different perspectives. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan. Follow us on Instagram at WMN.media or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you next week. Here's a quick message about a podcast from Ozzy, Take on America. Are all Black men progressive? Are all Asian American millennials politically engaged? This special audio series brings together people of the same race or ethnic background in order to shine a spotlight on their diversity and cut through the cultural stereotypes. Explore the range of opinions among groups of people who are often presumed to vote as a block. Get an inside look into the conversations these communities are having among themselves. Based on the groundbreaking TV show, Take on America with Ozzy is now available as a podcast. Check it out. Take on America, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.